Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. In this week's episode, we have Lauren, Hello, Ellen, Hello, and Justin. Tales of prehistoric terrors that may have not been so terrible at all from the deep seas. Also, answering the question on, are our friends genetically similar to each other? And also finding out if there's a cheaper and simpler way to produce x-rays. And now we launch into our Launchpad News segment. So looks can be deceiving. Sometimes um, what you think is a really dangerous thing in the middle of the night that's a monster that's going to eat you and rip you to shreds turns out to just be a tree moving in the storm breeze. But um, paleontologists have been dealing with this massive deadly and dangerous sea scorpion, that predator that roamed the Paleozoic seas over two metres in length. Turns out, though, there might be more than meets the eye with this giant sea monster. So what exactly is going on here, Lauren? So, Justin, I don't know if you've heard about this, like, massive, terrifying sea scorpion before, but it's actually, like, the thing is, back when they were still alive, which, just to clarify, they're not alive still now, you guys don't have to worry. Yeah, they're um, from the Paleozoic um, era. So they roamed the 35 million years ago, they roamed the oceans. So relax, guys, you're safe. But what does this thing used to look like? It was, they used to be like more than two meters long and they roamed like shallow shorelines and they had like long toothed grasping claws in front of their mouths with like massive eyes. They're really terrifying to look at. And there's actually some pictures online where they've created little models of what they looked like. Yeah, so it's called a pterogoted europtrid at the moment, and that's that's its name. But if you imagine, like, a cra- a lobster merged with a scorpion and then, like, blown up in size. That's, uh, that's, pretty, that's much. pretty much what it looks like, yeah. Um, so originally they thought, they saw this thing, they were like, oh, my God, this is terrifying. This just had to be one of those top predators that was, like, roaming the oceans, right? Yeah, and they're, like, eating everything in its bath. So, so how did they uh, shed some light on this situation? Well, what happened was after they built this model of what the um, sea scorpion looked like, some Yale graduate students um, had developed some cool mathematical methods and using the model they were figuring out um, just the different ways that this predator would have hunted its prey. Yeah, so they did some tests on its, on its eyes to see if it was like did basically an eye exam. Pretty much. And using this eye exam, they were like, hey, look, we, we can check out what these lenses are, right, are like, right? The, the, their eyes are so huge, they must have been able to see, like, miles away. Yeah, so but, they have, like, a thousand eye lenses because they're, they're scorpion-like. They've got these really crazy compound eyes that were so huge. But what they actually found out was these, <laughs> these amazing predator sea scorpions actually couldn't really even see directly in front of them. And it's even sadder than that. So this thing has massive claws and, and, and things that can, like, chop things in half. But what they found is that the claws themselves wouldn't even be strong enough to cut through modern-day um, shells of fish or skin of fish, and which means it basically couldn't even deal with the heavily armoured ones in the, the, the Paleozoic era. So it couldn't even chop anything up with its amazing massive claws. So basically what it did was it would slowly shuffle around in dark, cloudy water, just hoping that it would come across some prey that it could possibly attempt to take down and eat. 
Yeah, so it had to try and find something that was slower moving than it and and soft body and just hope that it wouldn't be able to run away from it before it could, like, chop it into pieces. The, the L team's actual vision testing actually proved that it has even worse eyesight than modern-day scorpions. So, like, the bigger the scorpions got as we would go back in time, the worse eyesight they had. Yeah, so it's it's really funny that they... What it seems to suggest is that uh, unlike shrimps and dragonflies, which have those compound eyes that are really powerful and can see a lot of different things really easily and clearly, since they're so small, when you make those lenses bigger and expand them in size, it means that they get worse. <laughs> so this massive this massive scorpion had these eyes like a dragonfly, but it couldn't use them like a dragonfly could, so it was basically blind. So this is some really interesting work that just goes to show looks can be deceiving, and uh, not everything that's scary is in fact looks scary is in fact a dangerous menace. So the giant sea scorpion uh, is really just a friendly and kind of sad and pitiful sea creature. So, Justin, you remember my friend Jen, right? Yeah, lightest, darkish hair, tallest, shortish, medium build, just like you, and was actually, wait, we're really similar looking to you. Well, it turns out there might be a reason for that. Uh, that you and Jen are uh, twins and secret clones of each other, living double lives in parallel, but not quite, because you're friends. Wait, this, no, this is just Orphan, Orphan Black. Sorry, I was getting confused for a second. Spoilers, Orphan Black was based totally on my and Jen's life. But no, <laughs> but actually... It turns out there's been some research done in this. I believe, Justin, you've done a bit more, you, you've read up on this? Yeah, so um, the, there's been a study performed using some data based from the Farningham's heart study, um, which has looked at the genetic similarity between people's friends and themselves and trying to draw a conclusion about whether or not genetics has a strong correlation to friendship. And this might seem really, really weird and esoteric as a topic for analysis, but effectively what they did is they used this long-running study of a population in a, in a town in, called Farningham in the United States. And we've talked about this, the Farningham heart study before, because it was basically how we discovered heart disease and a whole number of other medical issues. Because it's a study that's been going since 1948 of one population. And through this, we've actually been able to learn fascinating things about biology through statistical analysis and predict a lot of health impacts as well. So this is a long-running, well-respected study, but it's also an amazing treasure trove of data for scientists. So... (laughs) As, as the study has gone on, we've got more and more information from it, and we're now learning more and more things. So they basically took 2,000 people as part of this heart study, and they found that they found that friends, right, so the people who were friends, uh, these 2,000 people, shared more DNA with each other than they did with strangers. Now, not a large amount, about 0.1%, but they found that on average, people had more genetic similarity with their friends than they did with random strangers. And, and it's really interesting. So they came up with effectively what would be a kinship coefficient to figure out, you know, um, which people are likely to be friends and which people aren't based on similar genetic traits. That's actually really cool. I mean, obviously it's not going to be like, hey, look, I'm best friends with my cousin or anything like that. Um, but I don't actually know who's related to me further than my second cousins. Yeah. Does that mean- and that's the really challenging part of this survey. So 
and other surveys have been done in the past where they've looked at genetic similarities um, uh, between different community groups and figured out, does is this why we have people being friends with some people and friends with not other people based purely on genetics? And there is a certain extent to that. But what was really potentially a weakness of this study is that it was only looking at genetics in this small town where there's a strong chance that you'll be strongly related to someone else because it's only a small town compared to a big city like New York or Melbourne. Um, you may actually be related to someone further back than maybe four generations, but you'd still be related to them. But it, it does um, talk about a really interesting thing that suggests that maybe this kind of analysis can be done looking at a wider population. So they've done an initial proof of concept type test in, in the small area but it does suggest that maybe if you expanded this research out to another area, you'd certainly find that people who are friends with each other may have similar genetic traits. Now, there's a whole bunch of other questionable aspects of this research, which includes things like ethnicity and, uh, or basically ethnicity and background, which have strong genetic markers as well. So if you are a recent migrant from, let's say, North Africa um, living in Europe, then you're going to have a bit more genetic diversity than you are going to have with the person living next door to you who's also from you know, Northern Europe where, where this study is being done. So uh, it means that ethnic groups can have a strong factor on that. And part of sociological science and analysis, then there might be other reasons why you're friends with these people, um, which might have more to do with your background than genetics. But when they did this, it was a pretty homogenous community. So it was kind of almost easy to be able to say, uh, remove those as a factor by saying, look, if we just look at people who are largely the same, a largely small town, it actually ended up being the people who are more similar to them genetically are the people they're friends with. So they're, they're trying to base, see whether or not you could actually find um, statistical analysis on your, your genome and then basically say, you and me, we share similar genes, let's, let's be friends. You could say, like, um, if you only did this in, say, just one... So like yeah, like because it's a small town. But if you looked at a multicultural society, like yeah, yeah Australia, would yeah, be so, different. Yeah, it was all. And that raises a good point, Alan. So if you actually looked at uh, if you looked at Melbourne, you'd find that the genetic diversity is also something that might be the same, but also different depending on the community that you looked at and the people that you actually meet. If you have someone who goes to say a public a public high school um, in a very mixed community they might have a lot of different friends um, that look uh, and look nothing like them, act nothing like them, and come from very different backgrounds. So the genes may actually be quite different. But then again, when you think about it, we actually share a lot of DNA in common with a banana. So I don't know what analyzing DNA will go to show us, but it is an interesting thing to think about, understanding our DNA. And it might go, it might go a long way to explaining why friends, particularly like Lauren and Jen, tend to often look the same because, in fact, they're just, they're just actually clones for each other. You heard it here first, guys. Lauren and Jen are clones, just, just letting you know. Also, um, there's been a point in time when Lauren and Lachlan have looked also disturbingly similar. So that maybe... was Tessie. We don't talk about Tessie. What happens in Tessie stays in Tessie. <laughs> but for those of you who are playing along at home, Lachlan, frequent presenter on this show, and Lauren, also um, <laughs> producer and presenter on this show, um, actually very similar in looks as well. So maybe the entire podcast is staffed by clones. Think about that and dwell on that, and we'll move on to our next story. So for those of you who read 1950s comics, you would have been familiar with those advertising pages in the middle where they sold all kinds of wacky and crazy gadgets, including um, floating glasses, x-ray vision specs, and hypnosis things. But um, actually, there's a much simpler source of x-rays lurking 
right beneath your desk, maybe in hidden away in a drawer that you're probably not aware of. So what is this mysterious source of x-rays, Helen, and how can I get my hands on them? Well, actually, it's sticky tape. Wait, what? So wait, sticky tape, just yeah, normal yeah, like, run-of-the-mill sticky tape. Yep, the clear stuff you use. Uh, yeah, you can bite from Coles, Safeway. <laughs> uh, so oh, wait, 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 that's, that's, how does sticky tape produce x-rays? Because, like, okay, I get that sticky tape is see-through, but putting sticky tape on you does not make you see-through. How are we how are we producing x-rays with sticky tape? Uh it's actually it's not that understood. Um scientists aren't actually sure, but uh it's called triboluminescence and it's basically when two uh surfaces um that are touching each other move uh relative to each other and then it releases in the form of energy and um lucky for you it when you peel sticky tape, it only releases X-rays in a vacuum, right, so okay. you don't have to worry about uh, radiation poisoning or anything from unrolling the sticky tape. But that, that's that's amazing to think about it. So, triboluminescence is um, is something that they first you know defined uh, in, in the 1600s by Francis Bacon, who sort of noticed that when he scratched sugar cubes together it sort of gave off a little spark of light. Um, and that's that's really, really cool. So because there's so many different bonded layers with each other and sticky tape, you actually produce a lot of triboluminescence. So you're actually producing a lot of light because there's so many different things that have just pulled apart from each other so quickly. That, that sounds so cool. So what could we do with this uh, amazing... <laughs> amazing sticky tape x-rays uh, well, just... so um, they're considering using this uh, as a cheaper source of x-ray imaging in third world countries because you don't need all that fancy equipment to produce x-rays um, instead you could uh, because in their experiment uh, they used this and peeling the sticky tape in a vacuum was enough to take uh, x-ray image of their finger which, that, yeah, which is that's incredible. Like that's that's just like all you're doing is peeling is sticky tape. Forgetting like the difficulty of producing X-ray lines, cost-effective wise, that's so cheap and re- almost reusable to actually taking quick and efficient X-rays. But I guess you still have to have a vacuum, so that 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 is a bit hard. But that that's that's amazing. So I wonder what we could do with um, these aside from low cost and cheap X-rays. I wonder if there's another way we could actually adapt this to modern society. Did you have any ideas, Lauren? Uh, I was just thinking of, to be honest, wrapping my friends up in sticky tape and then pulling it off and saying, it's okay, it's for science, and just giving you an x-ray to make sure you're okay. Lauren, you shouldn't wrap your friends in sticky tape and then pull it off really quickly so you can see through their skin. That's, 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 that's not a good way to conduct <laughs> science, Lauren. And also because you'd have to be putting them in a vacuum first, and that's probably not going to go down well for them. <laughs> Uh, I was thinking of just getting out a vacuum cleaner and saying it was the same thing. Uh, well, unfortunately, vacuums and vacuum cleaners are not quite the same thing, <laughs> which is good because otherwise um, cleaning would be so much more difficult. <laughs> this goes to show some of the amazing things that you can find in science that are really surprising and can also really revolutionize people's lives and make life easier for people. So... Some of the wacky science that people do might have ways of benefiting people um, in third world countries and parts of the world that may not have access to crazy amounts of X-ray technology before. So it's a nice way of helping people's lives through fun and entertaining use of sticky tape. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, Lagrange Point. 
we solved the prehistoric tales of the scorpions with bad eyesight, along with finding out whether or not our friends have genetic similarities with us, and the ways to use tape to produce x-rays. Our ending theme was composed by Audio Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.